you're not necessarily making a ton of money, like neither us nor the investors are necessarily making a ton of money in the first few years. You know, our goal is to complete the project and get the capital back. But then now you've got this endless stream of money that you have no capital tied up in and you can go reinvest your capital and do it again. And so if you if you kind of chart that out over a period of time, you know, it's it's significantly, you know, it's it's significantly higher returns than if you were just investing in like a 17% IRR project and it was, and it ended every, you know, and it ended every three or five years. And then you had to start over, you know, you know, we're trying to create essentially like an endless stream of cash flow. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. I have a another special guest, a friend of mine, Daniel Casey. He We talk about how his evolution of you know a mathematics and and applied science and finance and accounting degree from UCLA led him into being a CPA at a KPMG a big uh, advisory firm and then not liking that and then going straight into construction and not only did he go into construction but he got into bridge construction, like literally building bridges or fixing bridges, expanding them and doing some other things. Certainly a clever workaround. Obviously, he's got the mental horsepower to jump into that and understand it. But it's just one of the first times I've ever heard of anyone just straight away getting into that, uh, these seismic retrofits. Obviously, as that evolved in understanding how to run construction projects, he grew his company, started doing interesting value add propositions to apartments, and then realized that he was adding so much value to the project that he needed to be an owner. So we talked through his journey into moving to the other side and getting into being a owner of real estate. What a fantastic way that was to build his net worth and especially with his experience of being a contractor. So I can't wait for you to hear this exciting episode with my friend, Daniel Casey.
Daniel Casey, welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm excited for this episode uh, just because I, I see you crushing it in uh, so many areas of your life. And I feel like you're just like the silent assassin that you're kind of going behind the scenes, just, you know, success, building success, building success on top of each other. And it doesn't get broadcast out there to the world as enough. And so I am excited to sit down and chat with you. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. I'm not sure I'm necessarily the silent assassin, but, you know, I, uh, I appreciate the compliment. Um, yeah, it'll be fun. I'm excited to do this. Well, for uh, the people that don't know you, you know, we've, has it been like four years, something like that? I think that we've known each other. Yeah. Well, I've been in, I've been in GoBundance since 2018. So yeah, 2019, I guess I would have met, we probably met at the uh, winter event 2019. So yeah, three, three plus years. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I think we've always uh, enjoyed spending some time together, uh, you know, skiing some slopes uh, up in Tahoe. I think we maybe caught up a couple of different areas and, and hit a, a few turns here and there. But I'd, I'd love to have, uh, in your own words, kind of give us a background of, of yourself. Um, take a few minutes to, to, you know, dive into that. And, you know, from birth until now and, uh, you know, ready to go. Okay. So, well, I'll start from where I'm at right now and we'll kind of go back. So I'm 45. I'm, I'm married. I have three kids. My wife and I have been married for 22 years. We have an 18-year-old who just graduated high school last week. And we have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I've, uh, I grew up in Southern California, went to UCLA. I have a degree in mathematics and finance, and I thought I was going to be a CPA. So I went and worked for KPMG, which is a large accounting firm right out of college. I realized within about six months of doing that, that I was not going to be a CPA and that I hated the world of public accounting and ended up being there about a year and a half, but I kind of had quickly realized I was looking for a way out. And so I started a construction company with a friend of mine, had no construction background whatsoever. We uh, focused on bridge construction. So we did a lot of seismic retrofits and widenings, anything that was related to bridge construction and repair. And, you know, on the surface, it probably seems like an odd thing to jump into when you have no construction background at all. But we were we were motivated to be a public works contractor because the low bid gets the job. And it felt like that way we didn't have to prove ourselves to anybody. We simply had to be cheaper. And so we uh, kind of looked for a niche in the public works market that had a little less competition. And so we ended up in these kind of oddball, oddball bridge jobs. So we did that for 10 years, ended up closing it down, going our separate ways, my partner and I, uh, in 2010. So it's kind of like, you know, the, the recession hit that industry pretty hard. Not at first, but after construction, residential and commercial construction really died off, those who were left all moved into the public workspace. And by 2010, there was no money to be made in it because basically there was enough contractors just hanging around trying to keep their employees going that they were more or less bidding jobs at break even or even at small losses just to kind of keep the doors open. So so we we stopped doing that, started doing, I started my own construction company at that point. Um without a partner and just started doing, just started doing small commercial stuff. I mean, in the beginning, it was kind of like anything to pay the bills. The economy was really slow back in 2010, 2011. By 2013, it was picking up and we started doing larger general construction projects where we were the, where we were the general, you know, general contractor and we were doing, um, you know, not nothing huge, but, you know, a couple, two, $300,000, you know, tenant improvement type projects on commercial buildings. 
And then that just kind of grew over the next several years. We started doing some larger projects for some multifamily and senior living owners. And then that was kind of when the light bulb went off and it said like, we are on the wrong end of this transaction. Like we should not be the contractor. We should be the owner. We, we did a, a series of jobs for a large, um, a large senior living owner. They had bought a portfolio of three, pro- three properties in Seattle. I don't have the exact numbers, but I understand they paid about $20 million for the combination, like for the total of all three of these buildings. We did about, I don't know, eight or $10 million worth of work between the three of them which was not, you know, which was a significant amount. But then I realized later that the value of their three buildings had gone from something like 20 million to something like 60 million. And I was thinking, hmm, that's a, <laughs> maybe we should figure out how to do that. So we decided, uh, you know, we, well, we, it was kind of a series of decisions, but, you know, decided at some point that I wanted to start owning commercial property. And the original plan was, well, if we just make money doing construction and then invest it into commercial property, we could buy one a year and in 15 years, we'll own 15 and then that'll be enough to retire on. And then as we started pursuing that a little further, we realized, well, this is silly too. We should just focus on buying commercial property and, you know, we can make money doing it. So we, we, in 2018, we decided we bought our first um, small multifamily property. And then we also made the decision to stop doing customer construction work. So we worked off kind of the balance of our backlog through the first half of 2019. And from, from then on out, we've just been solely um, buying and renovating our own, um, you know, our own stuff. So, you know, that kind of brings us to where we're at today. Like I've got, we, we have a small, we have 114 um, residential apartment units. We have a small hotel. We have a small industrial property. We have an office building. We're in contract on another 130 apartment units. And we're just kind of trying to, trying to grow as a, uh, as a developer. That's a, a awesome uh, story and arc that you've, you've uh, laid out there. I wanted to first, before we dive into the portfolios and what you're and how, where you're finding some of the deals uh, you said you went to UCLA and uh, what led you to mathematics and, you know, kind of those uh, types of degrees. Well, so one, I was always good at math. So that was, from that standpoint, that was an advantage. I was, it was just whatever, you know, high school math always came really easy to me, but you, I, what I would have wanted to do is be a business major, but there was no undergraduate business program at UCLA. So at UCLA, you could either do kind of an economics based major, or they had this thing called math applied science. And it was basically, you know, you had to take seven core upper division math classes, and then you could take the rest of your upper division uh, course load in any other science of your choosing. And so it was kind of just a simple looking at the catalog and the graduation requirements and adding up, like, what's the fastest way to get through this. And it worked out the best to do it as a math major with the applied science being, you know, finance and accounting. And then I would have all, I would have the classes I needed to be a CPA candidate. And it was kind of like the shortest, you know, distance from, you know, entrance to exit. That's that's uh, interesting, you know that, it, and even back then, you're you're shortcutting and looking, and it's just like, all right, here's all the variables of the options that I could do. Wow, this is the shortest path, and which gets me to the to the other side. Yeah, I'm I'm not claiming it was necessarily the best approach. Like the thing is, I took a lot. I, I enjoyed it. I don't I don't regret it. I mean, I don't regret much of anything. So I mean, it, it got me where I wanted to go. It was fine. 
I took a lot of the math classes I chose to take were kind of a lot of the more practical things. Like I took a lot of statistics and like combinatorics and game theory and those types of classes. But I will say that, you know, somebody else has used this analogy. I forget who, who talks about this, but, you know, I thought I was good at math until I, you know, started taking upper division math classes with people who were like actually good at math. And it was kind of like, there was a, I think Jim Collins explains that he uses that analogy in some of his speaking, but it was like, I mean, I did well enough to hold my own. And when I was interviewing for jobs at accounting firms, I was like the only math major interviewing. So everybody kind of cuts you some slack on your GPA because they all think math is hard. But I mean, it was very evident very quickly that there were some people in these math classes who could do math at a level that there was no way I was ever going to be able to, you know, comprehend math. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting that you say that. I've heard that actually a couple of times. Uh, I interviewed uh, Christian Mack on the show, same thing. So he was at uh, University of Chicago uh, doing mathematics kind of thing. And he was like, dude, there's people that were <laughs> like 12-year-olds sitting in there. And he's just yeah, like, you no, know, rain man. And like, wow. Well, yeah, one of my, one of my uh, professors was, I think he was 18 and he had a, he had a PhD from MIT. <laughs> like he had graduated, he had graduated from university in Australia when he was like 13. It's like, yeah, okay. He's, he's in another, he's in another category. <laughs> well, and, and I, I had that same thing in baseball. I was, you know, I was pretty good at baseball and I kind of had like this, this aspiration to be a professional baseball player. And then I played against, and, and it was actually in a, a Legion, uh, American Legion ball uh, against um, Roy Holiday. And Roy Holiday was pitcher and like all these scouts were out there. And so, you know, um, I, I think we're right around the same age. And so I, I was maybe like 16 or 17 and he was like 18 or so. And so he's getting ready. And I mean, dude, sm throwing smoke, like he's throwing mid nineties, high nineties in high school. And I'm playing against him and I'm like, I'm not that good. <laughs> I was like, like that dude is so good. And what is crazy is that he goes to the major leagues and he also wins multiple Cy Youngs. And so like I was comparing myself to like one of the elite people that have ever played the sport. And so then I was like, I don't think I'm going to go be a professional baseball player. I think I'm going to go, you know, to real estate or something else. I actually joined the army for a little while uh, in there, but yeah, it, it's like you see people that are like special and you're like, I'm not that. Yeah. So um, your portfolio now. So in 2018, you bought your first real estate deal, small multifamily. Is this just a cosmetic kind of fixer that your construction company are these heavy value add? So like, what is it that you're looking for from your acquisitions? Because it sounds like you got a little bit mixed bag of everything of some apartments, a, a small hotel and office and so we, okay, so as we go into 2018, we owned the office building and the small industrial property already. And that was part of this whole realization was, you know, we had picked up the office building back in 2009 um, because we needed an office, not because we were buying an investment, but um, we needed an office. We didn't like the idea of paying rent for it. So we thought we'd buy an office building. Um, and then similar, we bought the small industrial property because we needed a construction shop and yard. And we bought that in 2014. And so, it, then that was part of the realization, you know, kind of in that 2016, 2017, when I'm looking at my, you know, that, that was the first time I'd ever really 
looked at my net worth and it was kind of like, gosh, I've been a contractor for 16 years at this point. And yes, I've made an okay living, but the only thing I have to show for it is these two pieces of real estate. And I also owned a duplex. It was again, like that was my first house I ever bought, but it wasn't an investment. I just bought a house and then kept it, you know? So, you know, it's kind of that realization that gosh, I'm making, you know, my wealth, what little wealth I had at that point was simply these real estate assets. So I had, so I had that kind of hodgepodge portfolio, if you will. And then the, the, in 2008, in 2018, we bought this eight unit, eight unit apartment building. And it was, uh, it, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but the, it, the plan was we we're going to buy eight units. We were going to fully renovate all of them. It was in a pretty good part of town. So we were going to kind of make this the highest and nicest eight unit apartment building in that neighborhood and, you know, rent it out. You know, we were going to burn it. We were going to rent it out for a higher you know, higher rents, we're going to, you know, get a new appraisal, refinance it, get our capital back and go do it again. And so that's, I mean, that's what we did. We spent, it was, uh, we spent $860,000 buying it. We used a hard money lender. Uh, we put down, if I remember right, I think we put down 20%. We spent about $225,000 on all of the remodel and everything else. And then when it was done, we refinanced it, got all of our money back and then some, and then we went and did another one. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the concept you're talking about, it's not like revolutionary. I think it is, uh, a great model, especially because, you know, people get into these bigger remodels, they get scared, or if they're sometimes using a contractor, I've talked to this contractors want to make as much money as possible. Yeah. You know, as far as like, you're fixing up that portfolio for the people for, you know, that they bought for 20 million, you know, Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, if it's 20, maybe they, they paid 30 million for it, but it's like, you want to make as much money as possible and still get the job. Like, so it's like, you're kind of like at that, you know, that edge of like, how much can I charge you? Yeah, no, there's definitely, a, there's a huge advantage in being the contractor. I mean, I think for a lot of real estate investors, or um, especially if you get into heavier renovations or, you know, kind of more development type activities you know, one of your biggest risks is the construction piece of it. And so it's nice. I mean, that is definitely an advantage. And I, I, I enjoy being a general contractor because it does give us a lot of control over, you know, over what the price of the renovations are and the quality and everything else. So, I mean, that's been kind of an advantage we had from day one. Yeah. That's uh, you know, and, and for people that are not a general contractor, Obviously, finding people like Daniel is is a great way to kind of partner. Or do you have any partners? Is this all you know internal? Do you bring in any outside money? You know how how are you structuring what you're doing today? So when we started doing this, the first five buildings we bought were all just our own money. It was kind of just all this burst strategy that started from the initial seed money. I mean, we, I think we spent, you know, we had about $300,000 that we invested into that first building. Um, and so we kind of rolled that from an eight unit to a 12 unit, to a 10 unit, to a 30 unit. So I guess maybe it's four buildings, not five. Um, and then, then the next building, we did partner with somebody. We bought a 64 unit building in 2020 um, or 2021. That was uh, it, it, there was a much larger acquisition. It was a nine point eight million dollar acquisition, and it's a couple million dollars worth of rehab. And so we partnered with somebody to bring the capital on that. So and then we and we're the the building we're buying right now, similar situation. It's a again a much larger. It's a hundred and thirty unit building, you know, even larger acquisition, and and we're 
partnering with the same people on that job to bring the cap. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, are, are these primarily in your market? Cause you're up in your Tacoma kind of area. Yeah, we're in, we're in the Tacoma market. And yes, we are at the moment. We're a hundred percent local. Everything we own is in Pierce County. Most of it's in the city of Tacoma. You know, we self-manage all of our own properties. We do all of the maintenance. We do all, we're the GC on all the renovations. And so for the way we're doing it right now, you know, we're pretty hands-on and it would be, you know, so we, we've yet to venture into any other markets. Not that we wouldn't eventually, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of solid fundamentals in Tacoma and we're, we're kind of excited to, uh, to be part of just riding the Tacoma wave for a little while. So that's interesting. The, you, the, you know, being a contractor, let's say it's it's the similar as a lot of other people. I think you know you can make a lot of money or making a decent living off of it, but it, it is a very similar being on that hedonic treadmill of, you know, or hamster wheel, rat race, whatever you want to call it. You know, grind, 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 grind. You're looking at it and you're like, hey, yeah. There's no like, there's no recurring revenue, right? Like you're you're essentially you're only as good as some combination of your people and your next job. So it's like. Like that's what I, that's, that was kind of what was turning me off to it. And I looked at a handful of other things back in 2016 before I landed on real estate, but I was basically wanting something that had some recurring revenue or some sort of this intrinsic value, you know, like something that could make money, even if I wasn't, you know, sitting there cranking away at the wheel, so to speak. So, but yeah, no, I mean, that's the, I mean, construction is great. It doesn't take a ton of capital to get started, but on the other hand, it doesn't, it's, you know, pretty asset light. So it's not like you own a factory or something, you know, it's kind of uh, like, you're just, you're just a service provider. Yeah. And then, and then obviously everybody wants, uh, like you said earlier, the cheapest bid, you know, as far as, and so they'll, they'll cut you out, you know, uh, if somebody else has a, a cheaper bid. So that's always a challenge. So, you know, you don't do any third-party work all your own still today. Yeah, no, for the last, since 2019, we have not done any third party work, everything we've done is solely for ourselves. And, uh, do you pay yourself like normal going wages or do you utilize your company to be able to uh, have some efficiencies in your construction costs and maybe skinny? I mean, we're, that? it's, it's, it's changed. I mean, in the beginning, these projects were little and now these projects are getting bigger, but we basically, we basically relate to ourselves as if we were a design build contractor and we basically pay it on a cost plus model. So, so from the construction company's point of view, they're primarily concerned with quality and volume. They don't, you know, their, their profit margins fairly guaranteed because they're not, you know, we're, we're not bidding the work to ourselves per se, and then trying to do it for a fixed price. We're basically taking on the project and delivering, you know, we're just, you know, kind of designing it and doing it as we go. Yeah, that makes sense because it's, you know, then you're not necessarily losing money, but it, uh, I've found that you can oftentimes move faster mm -hmm. when you're in that, you know, kind of realm. Yeah, maybe you pay a little bit more than what you could get out there in the competitive marketplace, but gathering bids sucks. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then the other thing is, is, you know, for the most part, we have a we have a sense of what the budget is for the overall project. So, I mean, if, if you have a, if you buy a building for a million dollars and your plan is to put 200,000 into it, there's a lot, it would, it would take a lot of effort to know exactly how you were spending that $200,000 on day one. And the nice thing about doing it this way is we have a lot of ability to pivot. You know, if, if we run into 
an obstacle and something takes costs more than we initially thought, rather than just have to go increase the price of the overall project, it's pretty easy to start looking at the overall scope and figuring out, well, how do we, you know, how can we change or pivot or work around this in some way? And so we can, you know, again, because the contractor's interests are aligned with us as the developer, it's, you know, we're not, you know, the contractor's not trying to add scope, you know what I mean? Like every problem isn't a, a new revenue opportunity for the contractor. It's just, you know, we're all kind of working together to get it done. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Not trying to add scope because I know a lot of other contractors and change orders are, are how they make their money. You know, they get in, they low low bid you, and then all of a sudden you just get like hammered, change order, change order, change order. And then it's just like, what the hell? That's how they make their money. And that may be their their business model and methodology. But obviously, you know, having a little bit of uh, your, your hand in, in both operations allows you to kind of control that a little bit. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And, and we, in part, we were probably never that successful as a contractor because we didn't, you know, probably just personality wise and just the nature of how we always operated, we probably acted too much like the owner most of the time. So, you know, we weren't that contractor that was out there taking advantage of every opportunity for a change order or, um, and then we would also get frustrated when we saw owners doing things that we just felt were ridiculous, you know, and on one hand, it's like, well, we're happy to do the work, you know, but on the other hand, we're looking at it going, gosh, if this was our building, we would do it this other, you know, so I, there was, I think we always kind of had that ownership mentality, even when we were a contractor and consequently, it's probably why we weren't that successful of a contractor. That makes sense. There's so many times I've done that as a contractor. Like you're just like, oh, you know, it'd be fine. You know, it's like, ah, but like, give me some examples of that, that you've seen, like maybe the ownership was going down the wrong path or doing something that, you know, you thought, and I, and I use that as, as just because a lot of people listening to this maybe don't have the, the construction chops. Um, and you know, sometimes take it in a direction that is not the most economical or slows the project down. So what the one that stands out in my mind is one of the jobs we had done, there was one of these senior living projects. It, it, these were existing buildings. And so they had, you know, you were, you were doing a significant reno, renovation to an existing building and the existing plans were poor. And there was a lot of kind of mistakes made by the architect. And, you know, the, it was just, it was, there was constant delays, constant change orders. And, you know, everybody kind of, at least we felt like we understood what needed to be done. We were the general contractor on the job. Everybody kind of understood what the end goal was, but um, the way the owner chose to handle it, they brought in a, they brought in kind of a construction management consultant. And it was kind of like the equivalent of, you know, I'm not sure, like, you know, hiring the IRS to come in and, you know, do the bookkeeping for your, you know, for your small business. It was kind of like the scope of this thing just blew up because th this, you know, this consultant, you know, was doing everything. And then some at every, you know, it, it was like, we were just watching the, the costs go through the roof. And we were kind of thinking this whole time, like, gosh, you know, all you had to do was get, you know, get us and a couple of the key subs in a room and we could all just sort of agree on what the outcome needed to look like and we could just make it happen. And then yes, there'd be some change orders involved, but we weren't going to be, you know, recreating this, you know, massive, you know, it, it was just a, 
we just felt like it was just frustrating because everybody felt it. Us, all the subs, everybody kind of was like, this is ridiculous. This is so overkill. You know, we're, you know, there's so much delays happening. And, and yet, you know, we were just the contractors. We didn't really have any, we didn't have any say, and it wasn't our money. It was the owner spending their money. So ultimately everybody just kind of, you know, just kind of got on board and did what they asked us to do. And, you know, but I mean, millions of dollars were being wasted. Yeah. That's, um, it's frustrating to be a part of, you know, as far as, uh, I've seen things also like, uh, I don't know if you've ever had it. Have you ever had to rework or tear something out because it was like, ah, or, ah, we didn't really like that tone of that tile or, you know, flooring or something like that. Go tear it out. Yeah. We nothing. We've never like, thankfully we've never had to like tear down massive things, but yeah. And, and the thing is that is what people don't appreciate. And even I don't appreciate is like, that's like the most disheartening thing for a, for a trade worker. Like, I mean, the thing is, even if they're, even though they're getting paid by the hour and you would think they shouldn't care what they're, you know, they shouldn't care what they're doing. It's like, look, you get to build it again. Like you're getting paid twice, but like, there's nothing that demoralizes construction workers more than tearing out work or redoing things. And so, yeah, we, you know, definitely try to avoid it at all costs. Yeah. That's at least, um, cause I've been there. Like it is like, you're like, look, you're getting paid. And you're like, I don't care. Like, I was like, there's almost no amount of money that makes it, it worth it that when you're redoing and be like, Oh, you know what? I decided I don't like those tiles. Like, Oh, let's just tear them all out and redo it. And you're just like, what? I just want to burn down your property. <laughs> just like this so angers me right now. But, uh, yeah, I, I know it's challenging. So, uh, and at least fortunately when I've done that on the construction of my own projects, I just make a note next time I'm not going to use that tile. We're good, good enough for right now. Yeah. And, and that's the beauty of doing your own stuff is you do kind of, I mean, we've made lots of errors along the way where it's kind of like, okay, mental note, don't do it that way again, but Hey, we've got, you know, we've got a hundred more units to do. So we'll have a couple that we don't love the way the tile turned out and again, the next 98 will look great, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that, that's, that's a big advantage of doing your own stuff. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. So now, I mean, your wealth has, you know, let's say 
you know, exponentially changed or, or multiplied because you've started, you know, and moved into that kind of owner's position. And so like, what is it that you're looking for to continue to add into your portfolio? I mean, it started with just, uh, you know, necessity. I need an office. I need an industrial building. But now there's, it seems like there's a little bit more uh, attentionality behind what you're going after. So like, what is it that you're going after now today as someone that's, you know, kind of a design build GC? Yeah. So, yeah. So when we first started, you know, we had made the decision that we were going to do multifamily. And that was basically because we had some multifamily experience as a contractor. And then, you know, the first three or four buildings we bought, they were purely just anything that looked like it could make money. Like we were just looking for a deal. And then as we've gotten a little better at it, we understand the market a little more. Now we are a lot more focused. So we're specifically like right now, we're specifically looking for, you know, kind of underutilized garden style apartments, 70s, 80s, vintage, as close to the urban core of Tacoma as possible. Like, so we're looking for kind of like C minus properties in A plus neighborhoods. And then we are, and we're looking for things that have the opportunity to be fully redeveloped. And what we're trying to create is we, we characterize it as affordable middle-class housing. We're trying to create like an A minus B plus type product that can compete directly against new construction class, a mid-rise stuff that's going up in the same neighborhoods we're in. And what we like about it is um, so in these same neighborhoods, they, you know, there is this kind of brand new class A stuff, but they're all being built in, a, you know, like a mid-rise. Like these are typically like, you know, five, five over one type construction. And, um, you know, and if we can buy these older garden style communities that are in the same neighborhoods, we just have so much more space. And so if we, you know, we can't build the exact same sort of new construction amenity to the units themselves. I mean, we can do a nice job on a remodel and we can put in a lot of kind of, you know, nicer finishes and, you know, kind of things that you would expect to find in a typical, you know, middle-class home. But what we can do that they can't do is we can have big dog parks. We can have, you know, pools, we can have walking trails, we can have just really beautiful landscaping. And I think, I think the thing that, you know, one of the big differentiators is like, you know, do you want to have to take an elevator down every time your dog needs to go out and potty? You know, it's like, that's, that's a huge thing. Like if somebody can like walk out their back patio and there's this beautiful, you know, landscaped area and they, you know, it's, it's just so, so that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're focused on kind of providing a product that is fairly underrepresented in our market right now. This, so we're kind of building these, you know, B plus a minus, um, redevelopments. That's interesting. So are you coming into that? And let's take that is, you know, a, a theoretical class C garden style that's kind of 70s vintage. And are you coming in and, and or like, what is it that you're doing to move it closer to that A minus B plus kind of category? Like what's what would be? Well, so, I mean, so it starts with location, right? So I, I can't change the location. So it has to be in the right neighborhood because no, no amount of fancy amenities is going to get a, you know, a, a middle-class tenant to go move into a non-middle-class neighborhood. That's just not going to happen, right? Like the thing is the people, the typical tenant we're, you know, that we're going after, they desire to live in these particular neighborhoods. So, so locations like by far the biggest factor. And then, so then what we're doing is we're kind of 
you know, we're looking for things where there's an opportunity to create some unique amenities. Um, so we're looking for, I mean, like a lot of, so we're, we've got a, a project under contract right now. It's 131 bedroom units, but it's an older property. It's in an extremely desirable location. I mean, it's, it's just feet away from million dollar single family homes. It's very near the water. It's, it's like a very, it's just a very desirable neighborhood to live in, but you know, the current finishes are 30, 40 years old. The buildings look like government barracks and it just doesn't, there's nothing appealing about it. And so we're, we're kind of totally redeveloping um, the whole community. So we're making, we're doing an extensive outdoor landscaping reconstruction. We're going to put in like a big covered pavilion. We're putting in dog parks, pickleball courts, you know, horseshoe pits, fire pits, you know, we're going to kind of create this really extravagant outdoor living space. And then it'll kind of be this, you know, so there'll be these one bed, these small one bedroom apartments that don't actually have any, they don't have any kind of patio or balcony. So it's a, it's a unique style of construction for Tacoma. Um, but then they'll have this over the top outdoor living space. And like, we're just, we're picturing a, you know, kind of 25 to 35 year old demographic who, you know, maybe they work from home, maybe they, you know, work in Tacoma, but, you know, they're going to come back, you know, and sit out and enjoy a beer with their neighbors in the afternoon. And it's kind of a, so, you know, so that that's the type of thing we're looking to do. We're looking to try to create something unique, something that we can compete against the other properties in the market and have amenities that they just don't have. Um, like to my knowledge, there's no apartment building in Tacoma that has any sort of a summer camp like outdoor park where they can, you know, sit around a fire pit and enjoy a beer with their neighbors. Yeah, that's, um, I like that. I like that idea of being unique just because if you're just, uh, in an arms race for the other amenities of mid rise, you know, you know, five story or, you know, whatever that is a five over two or five over one, five story stick kind of built, you know, yeah, you got a golf simulator and a, and maybe a dog wash station, but it's on the other side of the entire building and you don't have the green, you can be and do something unique there. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Are you going to continue just to stay in that, that multifamily? And so are you just doing a kind of a burr method with these refinancing, you know, and, and then pulling your money out once it's stabilized or do you sell these? No, I mean, our, our goal is to be long-term owners. So, and that's, and the investors that are investing with us and um, partnering with us on these are, are, have the same goals. I mean, we are looking to refinance and return capital, but we're not looking to sell. So we're, so the idea would just be to kind of, roll over that capital and you know as we complete projects you know do it again and and that's so i mean and so we are specifically looking for enough value add in these jobs that it's reasonable to return capital in two to three years and um and do it again i mean i know a lot of you know a lot of a lot of syndicators have a model that's based on the you know that ultimately results in a sale you know three to five years out and we're trying to avoid that if we can like our our primary goal would be to return capital through a refinance event and then, and then just hold it indefinitely. Uh, I, I love that model just because there's so many times that I've had investors that are like, now what do I do with this money? You know, and now I have a tax burden or, you know, I, I think there's, let's say it's basic math. It's not high level UCLA upper division math, basic math, buy cash flowing properties and hold forever. 
Right. Well, and and I think what gets lost with a lot of passive investors who are investing in these types of deals is, you know, if you're comparing IRRs and that's the only metric you're looking at, it doesn't take into consideration the velocity of of money. And so you can actually get a you can actually get lower IRR projects that'll give you significantly higher returns if you get your capital back quickly and you can do it again. You know, and so that's the I mean, so on the surface, that's kind of our model. Like you're not you're not necessarily making a ton of money, like neither us nor the investors are necessarily making a ton of money in the first few years. You know, our goal is to complete the project and get the capital back. But then now you've got this endless stream of money that you have no capital tied up in and you can go reinvest your capital and do it again. And so if you if you kind of chart that out over a period of time, you know, it's it's significantly, um, you know, it's, it's significantly higher returns than if you were just investing in like a 17% IRR project and it was, and it ended every, you know, and it ended every three or five years. And then you had to start over, you know, you know, we're trying to create essentially like an endless stream of cash flow. Yeah. Kind of an infinite return because you, you have your money back out you're playing with house money. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, for the listeners, that's like, you know, super clever because, you know, you, you get an exit these are before tax numbers, this 17% return. Well, you know, the tax man wants, wants his cut. And, you know, so then you're either, you know, forced to, to make quick decisions to kind of redeploy that. And even if you're investing into a syndication, you can't necessarily 1031. You just have to pay, pay the taxes or have a lot of other you know, uh, passive losses and other things to try to offset those. And I'm not saying that, you know, don't take a 17% return deal or 20% return deal. It's just like the after tax dollars is, is really, really important. And then the, the more successful people that I'm around understand those things. So like what Daniel's saying right now is through a refinance, a stabilization, your permanent financing, you get your money back and maybe even money plus, but it's not taxed because you haven't sold that asset. Now you're playing with house money. You can take your money, reinvest it somewhere else, and that's going to make a return. You know, And so now you've created this, this infinite loop of returns and it is Obviously, on you know, from Daniel's side, he's doing the work, but the investors aren't doing the work. And that's one of the big things about passive wealth that we're talking about is like you don't actually have to do all of that work. You can find people and partner with people like uh, Daniel that have the experience and, and the the boots on the ground uh, experience. So as we're getting a little bit closer to wrapping up the um, the podcast here and the, this episode is I have a few questions that I wanted to hit at you. Um, was what is one thing, uh, that you have spent money on that has given you more freedom or maybe even been the best return on investment, uh, in, in your mind? Like, I think the, the thing that jumps in my mind and, you know, instantly when you ask that question is we have two modest vacation properties. We have a, uh, I've got a cabin on 40 acres, um, in Eastern Washington, it's a very rural piece of property. It's no, no, no power, no water. It's just a dry, it's just a dry cabin setup. And then we also have a, um, like a, it's, it's kind of, it's a glorified timeshare. It's a one ninth ownership in a residence club down in Palm Springs. And 
on the surface, we bought both of those two things when we probably couldn't afford to, <laughs> you know, we, we, we didn't have millions of dollars of net worth. We just had cash and it was burning a hole in our pocket. And so, you know, we bought a cabin and we bought um, this, uh, you know, this share in this residence club. But I would say that in terms of benefit to, you know, my family and to me personally, and just, it's just been such a great experience to have have places to go that we can get away and, uh, you know, recharge, you know, you know, get some clarity going to the cabin, um, with no cell coverage and everything else is a, is a wonderful experience. So, you know, and there was also probably a element of, even though we didn't necessarily have the finances that probably would have traditionally justified spending that percentage of our, of our net worth on those, on those assets, there was a feeling of like pride, you know, that like, Hey, we, 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 we own a, we own a vacation home. It's like, you know, I don't know. There was, it was a little bit of that, you know, proving to yourself that you can do it. So that that's what I would, that's what I would say. That's an awesome answer. I love that. I grew up going to a family kind of cabin on a lake that had no power that, you know, had propane as the, you could run the lights in the fridge off of a propane kind of thing in the stove. And we loved it. That's some of our best memories ever. So that I love that answer because it, it brings back the nostalgia of my youth. So you, you, you know, transitioned. And, and I know that we, we talked about this as far as, you know, you discovered, you looked at your balance sheet, um, started seeing that your true, your net worth was about the assets that you uh, purchased. Was there any kind of things that you read or researched or looked at that helped you kind of now that you realize, oh, wow, my wealth is being made in owning real estate or investing into kind of real estate. Now that you're kind of merging and trying to, to grow that, anything that gave you insights, and I asked that for like someone else listening to this, like what are some of the books you read or podcast or things that you did that helped you, you know, move to that next level of understanding? Yeah. So I read a lot as, you know, I think, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people experiencing success have learned that reading is a really valuable tool. So I, I, I probably read close to a book a week. But so I can tell you two, two answers. Like the very first uh, real estate investing book I ever read was Brian Murray's Crushing It in Apartments and Commercial Real Estate. That was what got me into the idea of looking for, you know, kind of distressed or value add properties. And I, you know, I highly recommend that book for anybody who's just trying to understand how this world works. And then, you know, I've read a lot of, there's been a lot of influential books along the way. So maybe I'll just stick to a couple that I read really recently. One was I read uh, Vern Harnish's Scaling Up. It, it was originally called The Rockefeller Habits. I don't know if you've read that one, but it's, it's um, I, I'm a big fan of EOS and Traction. I read Gino Wickman's Traction a handful of years ago. And someone recently told me I needed to read Vern Harnish's Scaling Up. And it's interesting because it's a much older book, but it's pretty evident that Traction is essentially like the simplified version of this, this scaling up or the Rockefeller habits. So that was a really good book. It, it, in my mind, added a whole lot of clarity, filled in gaps where I felt like maybe traction was a little oversimplifying some of the actual complexities of, of running a business. Um, and then I read another book that uh, recently that I really, really loved. It was called team of teams and it was by general Kevin. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to grab it. and I'm going to tell you the General Stanley McChrystal. 
And so he's the he's the U.S. he's the U.S. general who was in charge of the Joint Terrorist Task Force in Iraq, um, kind of in the uh, like mid two thousands, I don't know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when they were trying to learn how to deal with Al Qaeda in Iraq. And it's a it's a really great story because they basically showed up with this command and control military structure that had been working for decades, you know, and they had teams of SEALs and teams of Rangers and they had Air Force intelligence and they had CIA and they had the FBI and they had all these people. And then his job as the general was to, you know, tell, you know, he kind of describes it as he viewed his role as like a chess master. He was supposed to, you know, move his pieces appropriately. And so they they started out on this campaign to, to uh, you know, defeat Al-Qaeda or to fight with Al-Qaeda. And then at some point, he says they realized that they had taken out the number three guy like 21 times. And then at some point they said, maybe there's not a number three guy. <laughs> like they kept on trying to understand the structure of Al-Qaeda in terms of, you know, sort of this Western military idea of a hierarchy with, you know, somebody on the top you know, with a, with commanders underneath them and, and then, you know, divisions underneath those people. And, you know, and so anyhow, he, the book is called team of teams. And it's basically how he realized that in the modern world where there's so much complexity and where, you know, a tweet in Cairo could trigger an attack in Baghdad. That's, that's just kind of, you know, information and, you know, life essentially moves too fast to work decisions through a traditional, you know, hierarchical structure. And so they started, they, they started creating kind of the, what they called these teams of teams where, you know, you had SEALs communicating directly with Rangers, communicating directly with the CIA, communicating directly with the FBI. And the leaders weren't necessarily the decision makers. He describes it as going from being a chess master to a gardener. Like his job was to make sure that the soil and the other elements of the garden had all of the things that each of these teams needed to be nourished and to be healthy and essentially just let them do their thing. And so it's a, it's a really cool book. It changed, it, you know, it really changed a lot of my, um, my thinking about leadership and how, how teams can be organized. That's really interesting. There's a lot of things that you brought up in there that it's, yeah, instead of being the chess master, trying to understand everything that's going on all at once, which, you know, is uh, the more and higher you get up, the, the more the complexity is you can't, you, it's impossible to do that. Um, I like that also, as far as are the soil conditions, right? Do you have the right you know, do you have the right food? Do you have the right resources? Do you have the things that to effectively do your job? So instead of trying to um, micromanage or control, I know that's one of the things that we talk about as far as being entrepreneurs and maybe contractors in general from starting of that is you kind of want to control everything. Um, you want to have, you know, like driving that. I know that you are you know, kind of expanding your, your operations, you know, and, and thinking about that in a more dynamic way. So, and this kind of leads up to some of the other the closing out questions is like, how can people help you uh, right now? What is it an ask of the audience? Um, what is it um, that if somebody were to be listening to this podcast and it sparked anything, what could they do to help you? Yeah, so I think where we're at right now is where we've got more 
growth opportunities and we have capacity to to manage them in house. So we're you know I, I think we're looking for we're looking for key people. We're looking for people who could come in either as you know like development project managers to help manage some of these development projects, but we're also uh, really looking right now for operations people, somebody to come in as a, as an integrator. If people are familiar with that concept or kind of an executive assistant to help just run the day-to-day operations, provide some, some structure and some uh, discipline maybe. Well, as a fan of EOS, it sounds like you're looking for some kind of integrator or operations or maybe executive kind of level uh, type person. Uh, Do they call, I've read scaling up in the past. I don't think I connected with it as much as I connected with EOS. And maybe that was just because of where I was in the journey. Do they have or call that something in scaling up? They don't. Yeah. And scaling up, they don't use the integrator term. I think they just show it on a more traditional org chart where maybe you have a, a CEO or a board of directors and then below them you have a president or maybe a chief operating officer, but they don't they don't use that kind of visionary integrator terminology like they use in EOS. Yeah. So and again, I think for people that if you have not read EOS, you've not read, you know, some of those things, you're running a business, you have to be using some kind of organizational operating system. Um, you know, there's um measure what matters OKRs. And, you know, is kind of once you're getting above, you know, a hundred plus employees, but man, if you're under a hundred employees, EOS, uh, or at least I don't know of another system out there that I think is, is, is widely successful or used uh, as that program. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a, it's so easy to, you know, you can read the couple books and uh, it's so easy to grasp and you don't even have to implement it a hundred percent, right? Like the thing is like, I know just about everybody I know runs some version of EOS and I'm sure that very few of them look the same, right? Everybody kind of has their own, their own adaptation, but I mean, there's just so much wisdom in the, in the system and in the book. Well, was it interesting? I was interviewing, um, the other day and they said they were 80 or 90% accurate on EOS. They brought in an EOS implementer to help them refine it. And they said that last 10% allowed them to grow exponentially. So they were doing, 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 doing. And they said that last 10%, we 10X'd our organization. It was that big of a difference as far as like, because we're like, we were kind of close. We kind of had things. But dialing in the details of those KPIs, getting the better of the sequencing of those those meetings, getting the the rocks aligned with um, you know, your yearly in, in, you know, three-year kind of goals and kind of, they're like 10X, everything about it got better. And so, uh, again, I have not experienced that. So I was like, uh, I, I, I was like guilty. I was like, I need to go get an EOS implementer in here to, to refine these things that I'm doing. Never, we haven't worked with anybody yet either. So, yeah, well, for, for anybody out there, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think I'm reaching out right now. I have a, a couple calls with an implementer because I, I felt guilty that I was like, oh, maybe I'm not doing this the way that I should be doing this. Um, but if you're a, a someone that's looking, you're maybe in the, well, Tacoma area, I think that would be, you should reach out to Daniel. Where can people find you? 
um, bring you a deal. You know, there's this, this, uh, amazing integrator that wants to come work on that, uh, and build, build not bridges, the metaphorical, be more the metaphorical builds, uh, bridges. Uh, how can they connect with you? Um, you can, they, you know, you can find me on Facebook, although I don't do a lot of, uh, I don't do a lot of business related Facebook posts, but you can certainly find me out there. I'm also on LinkedIn. And again, I am not a heavy user of it. You can go to our website, which is north40capital.com. Um, or you could just email me. I'm Daniel at BlackRockNW, like northwest.com. So you're a multi-trillion dollar company? Yes, yes. Not that, not, yeah, that's the BlackRock. No, BlackRock North. No, no, the other BlackRock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daniel. Yeah, BlackRock is the name of our uh, construction business. So we have a uh, BlackRock Construction is what we've been operating. So my email address is based in that BlackRockNW.com. Well, uh, that would be cool if you're actually the like the trillion dollar wealth management shop. You'd be so uh, uh, under the radar of that. Daniel, I really appreciate your time hearing your story. I thought it was incredibly fascinating and uh, I can't wait until I feel like we should actually have like a segment of just talking about some books. Uh, and maybe that's like our, our grown up version of, of a book club. Every time I talk to you, you have such insight and in, in so many books that are uh, uh, great. And I'm, you know, got to go now buy Team of Teams because I have not even heard of that one. And it sounds fantastic. Yeah, no, that sounds like fun. I love, uh, you know, I love uncovering, you know, new books. Like, you know, team, same thing, you know, I, I had never heard of Team of Teams. I heard it was, you know, somebody mentioned it offhand, maybe in a podcast. I don't even remember where I heard of it, but I... I love finding these books that are kind of maybe not the mainstream, you know, popular business read, but they're, they're, you know, they're really good. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.